Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is called Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist Part 5, originally produced and published by Rational Faiths Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the episode. In this episode, Laurel and I talk with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife about two questions that came up. One is a concern that a listener had about uh, the teaching going on in her ward of chastity for the young women. And in the, to put it in the questioner's words, the idea of the young women's president or the young women's presidency was to scare the crap out of them <laughs> so they never make a mistake or never dare make a mistake. And so uh, that's one approach, but uh, Dr. Fife, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, uh, offers some other ways to talk about uh, sexuality for teenagers, especially teenage girls. Uh, the second question is one we haven't dealt with at all yet, I don't think. Which it's, it's about pornography and how to deal with pornography. Um, I've heard on I've heard this talked about in other podcasts, yeah. and the takeaway message seemed to be, "Don't shame," because you'll end up in a you'll end up putting someone into a shame cycle, and they'll soothe themselves when they're feeling really bad by consuming more pornography, and then they'll feel bad about that, and so they'll soothe those, themselves again. And it's very hard for them to get out of that cycle. In this in this discussion, Dr. Jen offers some really thoughtful ways to at least think about pornography, a way to think about it more more fully than good and evil, right? And also, as a content warning for listeners, in that discussion, we, we don't focus on it a lot, but we do bring up the idea of pornography being linked to human trafficking and sexual abuse, and uh, we talk about addiction. And so if those things are triggers for you, then don't listen to the second half of the podcast. Um, so that's what we've got on the table today. Let's jump right in. Very good. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our fifth installment of Ask Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Um, I'm Laurel, and I'm here with both Brian and Dr. Finlayson Fife. So say hello, kids. Hello. Hello. Um, so if you're not familiar with it, um, Dr. Finlayson Fife is a sex therapist that specializes in LDS families and couples, and we just field questions that are given to us, and she answers them. So I'll start with our first one. And apologies to the listeners. I've got a kid in the bathtub that you can probably hear singing and playing, but (laughs) it's adorable. Um, (laughs) Anyways, here's our question. I'm friends with many of the young women's leaders in my ward. The other night they were discussing a recent standards night activity where the young woman president was teaching about the law of chastity. To quote them, her tactic was to scare the crap out of them so that they wouldn't dream of having premarital sex and explaining that sexual sin is second only to murder. I tried my best to explain why I felt that approach was harmful and not appropriate, but I wonder if you could address the best healthy and appropriate way to teach the law of chastity in a Mormon context to a group of young women. While I'm not sure the young woman president would be receptive to hearing your answer, I do believe several of the other leaders would be and could hopefully counter her discussion in a positive way if they heard it modeled for them. Could you help? Okay, great. So this is um, this is a topic I care about a lot, uh, is just how do we talk to our youth about sexuality, but in particular young women, because I think we have traditionally done such a bad job of it and created so many problems um, that is now my livelihood, but <laughs> meaning a lot of couples that come to me um, and women in particular that have so much anxiety about their relationship to their sexuality. But I mean, let me just, I think first just speak to the fact that I think culturally and not just in the church, just at, and the you know and humanity often has sort of a deep anxiety about sexuality and 
really this fear that sexuality is going to take you down, um, that it's kind of the that to be sexual or to admit to being a sexual being is to be at risk for turning into a depraved and um, soulless person. <laughs> and I think particularly our notions of what masculinity is and what femininity is, it's really counter to our notions of what a good woman should be or, or ought to be. And so, you know, I think if this desire to scare the crap out of them, to quote her, <laughs> Um, is about like, you know, I, we're so afraid about the sexuality of our children and so afraid that they're going to express it or experiment with it. And of course, if your only goal is to just make sure they never have sex or that they never enjoy sex, then maybe that would be the right approach. But in reality, that's actually not a good approach because even people that have, were, had, you know, were tried, parents or leaders attempted to scare them straight. I actually believe they were less able to navigate re dating relationships in my dissertation research. They were less able to advocate for what they wanted because there was so much anxiety and so little self-awareness and so little knowledge of how to act with wisdom and clarity in those moments. So even if your goal is keeping, uh, you know, keeping our children chaste, it's it's a really bad approach, um, the fear-based approach. And it's also, you know, if you're going to sort of inflict anxiety around a God-given, very human experience of sexual desire and arousal and pleasure, um, I actually think it's a kind of a violent thing to do, to disrupt a natural relationship to one's body and to a, a God-given experience and to shame it and to basically insert anxiety into it. Now, that said, I believe that, you know, our sexuality is is powerful. Um, you know, it can cause great damage to somebody, um, how one uses their sexuality with another person, and it can also be a very uh, uplifting and transcendent experience on the other extreme. So it's a very powerful currency, and so being wise in how you use it is very important. And teaching uh, our youth how to be wise in in how they engage the, with their sexuality, or how I like to think of it, is how do you bless um, y your own life or someone else's life with this gift? Um, and that's really what your goal is: is to have it be a force for good. Um, so. I think that we can both hold our ideals without inflicting shame and we can um, encourage our, our adolescent children um, to be wise in their decision making without having them be terrified. And I think it means, you know, articulating here's the standard that we hold dear, that we believe in, and that is that sexuality is God-given and blessed and wonderful and it can be a wonderful thing. It isn't inherently good or bad. It depends on what you do with it. And um, and that because it's such a powerful way to, to be in a relationship with another person and because it has the power to bring a life into the world, it's intended to be in a marriage relationship or a committed relationship, right? So... Um, so I think it's, you can articulate the standards around sexuality without shaming the body's capacity for it, without shaming desire. I think we get too invested in the idea that desire is inherently a problem or arousal is inherently a problem. It just simply, not only is it not a problem, it's a problem if you don't have those feelings as an adolescent. <laughs> and you don't want to shame the experience of them. The experience is good. What you do next matters. And whether or not it allows you to sort of integrate your sexuality and sort of be at peace with your sexuality or reject and push it away. So, you know, the, the, in my dissertation research, the women that did well, um, I asked everybody what their first experience of arousal was and how they related to it, what meaning they gave to it. And 
these are women that I interviewed from their premarital experiences into marriage. The women who saw their initial experiences with arousal or desire, you know, whether they were just, you know, one woman, one girl when she was young was sat on the head of her doll and her body responded to it. And um, she had a very negative response. What came into her mind was dirty, bad, you know, that she'd done something wrong just because her body responded and she stood up. Um, And see, she wasn't able to see as opposed to another woman that I interviewed whose first response was to say like, oh, like, that's cool. (laughs) Like, I have this cool capacity and like, it's a good thing. And I'm looking forward to being able to express it more fully. So, you know, how you relate to your, your body's uh, capacity for arousal is very important. And then what you do with it is really important. So I think talking to young women about it's a good thing, your, your capacity for it's a wonderful thing, and there's nothing wrong with desire. There's not even anything wrong with arousal. I mean, it's just going to happen. But the choices that you make, they matter. And whether or not you um, um, basically what effect it's going to have on you or on the person you're in relationship with to respond to those feelings, that's the piece that you want to think about and look at. I also think it's important to talk to young women about like what it is they want instead of what it is that they should want. So we, we tend to talk to young women as if if you're a good woman, you aren't sexual. And boys, the poor chaps, you know, they are sexual, but they've got to keep a lid on it until they get married. And so, therefore, it's the young women's responsibility to be the sober drivers, so to speak, and to manage not only their sexuality, but the boys' sexuality in how they dress and in how they behave and all that. And so we we deeply burden young women and um, with a sense that they can't own their own sexuality and then they have to also manage the, the boys. And so... Um, this navigation is always happening or is often happening for young women in a frame that delegitimizes their sexuality and teaches them that they should be desirable to young men, but not too desirable, right? And so it really fosters this external reference. Does, what does he want from me? Am I doing more than he thinks I should be doing? Am I doing less than he? Am I acting like a prude? If uh, you know, if he wants me to go this far and I do, then is he going to think less of me? Do I need to go talk to the bishop? What does God think of me? And you know, many of the women that I interviewed when they talked about these early experiences were so. Uh, focused outside of themselves that they weren't asking the question of what do I want and what matters to me and what do I believe is good for me in this situation. And the women who did the very best in my dissertation research had a very clear sense of what they wanted relative to the law of chastity and how they wanted to navigate those relationships. And they were paradoxically speaking about their desires. Their desires were first and foremost in their minds rather than the desires of others. They weren't driven by the sense of, oh, I need to keep myself chaste so this guy will, so that my husband someday will think I'm legitimate or so that I'm a pure flower, not a crumpled flower for my future husband. That's not how they thought. The women who did the best thought in terms of the law of chastity is something that I value it, I want to not have sex prior to marriage, and I also want my husband to choose the same. And this is something that is between me and God, not me and a future man. This is not about me being valuable. This is about how I want to relate to my sexuality before marriage. You know, I was asked to teach a young women's lesson a few years ago, and really the question I started with was, you know, here's the law of chastity. Here are the principles we believe in, and I want you to, you know, take a piece of paper and write and think about, like, what is what do these principles mean to you? What do you want for yourself with respect to the law of chastity? How would you like to live relative to this? How do you think it would benefit you? What do you think will be hard about it? And, you know, what do you think what do you think you would do for yourself if somebody wants you to go further than what you just articulated that you want? 
you know, what would be hard about it? Because I want them to start thinking about how do I, how do I basically claim what matters to me? And then we don't teach women well at all how to stand up for their desires in a context of being in a relationship with men, because we actually teach young women to that they're nurturers by nature, that they accommodate the desires of others because they're so good and so Christ-like. And so many of the women in my dissertation research were, they didn't even want to go as far sexually as say their boyfriend was pressuring them to, but because they wanted to be desirable, they felt, you know, torn between I want to be pure and chaste, but I don't want to be a prude and I want him to like me and I want him to desire me. And they, and they just really had no, they really weren't in touch with what they wanted. And so they didn't have that strength and clarity that they desperately needed. And that's really to undermine young women's strength. And we don't want to do that to our young women. So having lessons that focus on here are the principles that we're taught. What do they mean to you? What do you want? So when I was talking to the young women, you know, now, of course, they're saying it in the context of a classroom. So maybe they had different thoughts than what they were sharing. But, you know, these young women really expressed, and I was talking to the laurels, they were talking about like really wanting that they saw it as valuable to them to be to to go into marriage and to not to wait until marriage to have sex to marry someone who had who chosen similarly and I think there's a lot of I actually think the law of chastity and it's one of the things I argue in my dissertation works in women to women's benefit if you take the sexism out of it because basically to ask men to domesticate their sexuality and to focus it on families you know women because you get pregnant and you basically are going to have that child um, if you have sex it's yours like because you carry a disproportionate burden that pressures you to domesticate your interests right to be family focused men aren't pressured in the same way but if you have a social system that pressures men in that regard then that tends if you think from a sort of evolutionary psychology perspective that benefits women and so Many women, in my experience, they value the idea of committed sexuality. Um, now, we've added a lot of sexism to it around making women desirable and, you know, keeping them chaste and pure and non-sexual, which is problematic and not theological um, from our theology's perspective standpoint. But um, I do think many or most young women want um, a context of committed sexuality and and like the law of chastity in that regard and just allowing young women to take more ownership of that desire and of that wish and of that belief and to allow them to stand up for what they want and to not be taking care of men's feelings all the time, which is what I spent time talking about in that lesson um, and being willing to uh, value themselves enough to stand up for what mattered to them and to stop trying to earn somebody else's uh, validation that's really how we best help women. And the women in my re research that really did that, oriented to the law of chastity as something that benefited them, they, they did the very best. Not only did they do best in marriage, but they navigated dating relationships very successfully. The ones that were more guilt and fear-based, they did much more poorly in terms of just living the law of chastity, not to mention their own relationship to their dignity and their sense of self. So... So again, do either of you guys have questions about that? Yeah, that's uh, kind of a comment and a question. I think what you've described with, in this Laurel's class where it um, sounded like it was a writing assignment mm -hmm. or a thought experiment or something mm -hmm. to think to instead of handing them what they should do or how they should think mm -hmm. about their chastity, you gave them ownership of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've talked about this several times uh, in this series where we're talking about owning your own life or owning your own sexuality, being your own inner authority rather than looking for mm -hmm. a quote or advice or something, but actually thinking and making that decision for yourself. And it, it just, it makes sense to start in young women's and young men's and, yes. and find ways for them to own that because I think, you know, when you've already gone through that and you've been taught the fear-based way, um, it's harder to, you know, hear a podcast or read a blog post or hear a TED talk or something. And for the moment, or 
um, maybe for the next couple of days you feel really good and you feel empowered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the shame come back, comes back in. So what? maybe my question is, what are some other devices or practices or exercises that one could do to, um, to point them towards being their own authority and owning their sexuality? Mm. Um, say if they are an older teen or an old or a young young adult, mm. um, what are some exercises similar to your your laurels um, mm, lesson? So maybe I have a couple of thoughts about that. I I think that we have culturally in the church, and we're not alone in this, this is like just human, but um, is that we are, just from a sort of moral development perspective, we're very focused and fixated on sort of compliance and being good girls and boys and kind of following the rules as the measure of goodness or the way into goodness. And I think there certainly is room for having rules or principles or a structure, of course, but this element of ownership of self is, is, I think, extraordinarily important to moral development and to, to actually to, to truly being a good person because you're you're getting outside of the frame of what everybody else wants from you and you're asserting your own choices and taking ownership of that process. So I guess my point is that in some ways I wish we would do this from – primary on, which is allowing um, less intensity around obedience principles and frames and more around choice and agency and who do I want to be. And we do this at church too, which is good, but goal-based and self, um, how to say it, self, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, but basically uh, defining a self in terms of who am I going to be on this planet and what do I want to create and become? And we do do those elements at church. I just wish we would do more of them. So, you know, goal setting and defining who I want to be in the world relative to the principles that I've been taught, any of the exercises that facilitate that, I think are very powerful and very important. And it doesn't have to be in a formal, you know, writing it out, but it may be, more the way that we engage our conversations with the young women. I, I've taught in young women's for a number of years, and I was always asking them things like, you know, what does this principle mean to you? Why do you think God would teach it to us? And, and I mean, I wasn't just looking for a canned response. I was really looking for, I wanted them to grapple with the ideas more, to be able to discern for themselves what felt true and to take deeper ownership of truth. Um, and so I think... A, being less like we have to like cram ideas down our kids' throats and more around teaching them true principles and letting them govern themselves, teaching them true ideas, and then allowing them the process of grappling with and experimenting with those ideas and being less afraid of that process of growth. So I know I'm giving you kind of a a global response, but keeping a sort of um, agency and ownership frame on our lessons I think is important. Um, yeah, I think that's good. And I, the one in my experience teaching the young men, the one thing that I think would be good is, is what you did. It sounded like what you did. Maybe I misheard, mm-hmm. but you didn't say, okay, now give me the answer. Yeah. You know, that like, I kind of think <laughs> to get real thought going, right. you have to say, I don't want to hear your answers out loud. I want you to stew on yes. this inside your head. Right for a minute because as soon as they have to verbalize something to their group, right. that's going to shape how they're going to even think yes. about it, let alone what they're going to be willing to that's right. divulge. That's right. That's right. So that might be a good thing with, I don't know, I guess with your kids to some degree or depending on how comfortable the group is and how comfortable they are with being open with each other. Yeah. You know, some uh, probably at least one question per class could be, you know, just think about this. Absolutely. Think about it inside your head. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, right. I think we have a lot of those things in church already, like journaling and goal setting. And But I think what your point is well taken, which is like to keep the group reference a little bit less dominant so that you're able to really grapple with who you are and um, what you value and who you want to push yourself to be in the world.
I actually right. taught gospel essentials on obedience and we had this big discussion on how um obedience out of shame is not that is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um because shame actually tries to take away agency mm-hmm. um in making you feel trapped or forced into a decision. Mm, where interesting. um yeah, it was actually my husband brought up that point when we were listening last night to last our last discussion, <laughs> um, our last podcast, and he just was struck by um, this whole idea of shame actually seems to take away people's agency mm-hmm. because then they don't feel like they feel like there's it's just there's just a good and bad choice and they're going to be punished for making the wrong one. Right. So it's not really about them proactively taking a choice it's reactively just defending themselves um, right and you don't you don't become empowered you don't become a fuller human being by doing that you just feel like you're fending off all the bad stuff but not really growing right um and so and so we talked about that today in uh gospel essentials that real obedience has to have agency and has to have us you know making an active choice um, that we are completely choosing this of our own free will and out of a desire as opposed to feeling like we're being forced to do something because we're scared. Right. Um, I just I did an interview with um, um, Christine Hagland, the editor of Dialogue, that was just published a couple last week on the issue of integrity. And um, I talk a lot about this idea of obedience that I actually wish we would use different language because I think what we value is uh, anyway, I, I won't get into it now. I'll take too long, but I think the language of obedience is actually problematic because of the issue of responsibility and where I think integrity or submitting to, to principles or submitting to truth is a function of integrity and I think it's a better word than obedience because it keeps the ownership of the choice on the chooser. Um, it keeps the responsibility of the choice on the chooser. And I think it's, it's better in our, in pressuring our ongoing moral development rather than constantly looking to what, you know, somebody else says we should do or think. But anyway, that's, that's for another discussion. So. Yeah, no, I, just, I just thought it was really interesting how it ties into, especially the law of chastity, and I mean that was kind of actually the the discussion we had last time is what even prompted that that thought from my husband that then I expounded on in class of, you know, the importance of making a choice, you know, whether it's in regards to chastity or any of the other commandments that we have that you're much more effective at it if you view it as as your choice <laughs> and right. not absolutely. Not, not something you've been shamed into doing and that you can actually keep the commandments more effectively without the shame. So this next question is about pornography and how we can deal with it. Nobody goes around saying they love pornography, at least not in the church. And but it's there, it's easy to access. It seems that avoiding porn is taught in several ways. And in church, the most common way is that it's wrong. It's wrong because God said so, and it comes with all sorts of problems. And there's often slippery slope messages, like it will ruin your marriage, it will ruin your work life through becoming addicted. And then uh, the next way that it's taught to, as far as avoiding pornography, is that it will mess up your sex life by causing erectile dysfunction or the inability to become aroused normally. And uh, more recently, there's been some social media that is sharing the fact that it is linked to human sex trafficking and abuse. Mm -hmm. So therefore, by purchasing or even clicking on uh, pornography, the viewer is supporting an obviously awful, violent, and evil industry. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are these the only ways to talk about porn? Which way is the most effective? Um, how does one escape the shame cycle of porn in order to get away from porn? Okay, good. This is like, there's so much to say that I'm afraid of getting lost in my own <laughs> thoughts. So please come in and ask for clarification or something if you need to. But 
But I think where I would probably start with it is that I think we, again, similar to the young women's lessons, we're so anxious about sexuality and arousal and eroticism. And, and, um, and again, you know, you can be in a marriage and family uh, PhD program and they'll have one course on sexuality. Okay, This is not just a Mormon problem. There is a lot of anxiety about sexuality because it's such an intimate and vulnerable way to be in relationship with other people. So I think that the dialogue around pornography is is very um, polarized and it's hard to um, figure out how to relate to it uh, in healthy ways. So... Um, so again, there's a lot of shame-based tactics, fear-based tactics around it. I do think, though, that it's important. I mean, I think the way that I would think about talking to my kids about it and even to adults about it is that the, you know, the fact that we get aroused when we see visual stimuli is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just normal. And, you know, sometimes I've, given the example that, you know, when I was um, nine or ten years old, my father had a book on his top shelf called The Naked Communist. It was a Leon Clausen book. I can't remember how you say his name, Skousen, something. Uh, it was about, you know, so it was called The Naked Communist, and I, you know, scaled my father's bookshelf to get it down, and I opened it up, and there was not a single picture of a naked communist inside. <laughs> uh, thank goodness, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, you know, and then you my, was telling my brother that story and he was like, oh, yeah, I did the same thing. And then I even went around the corner and found my sister climbing up to get it. And he's like, don't bother. There's no pictures. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a very human tendency to be curious, to be to find it stimulating uh, to see, you know, graphic images. And I don't think there's anything problematic about that fact. Um, inherently and I think sometimes we you know I've read some conference talks and so on that say like anything that arouses the body uh you know visually is pornography and is filth I I think it's it's just too global of a statement and 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 not particularly helpful um because is it always wrong to involve any kind of third you know so any kind of material, whether reading material or visual material that might be um, arousing, does that mean it's always, always wrong? Also to say like that, that it's all filth, which is, I won't give the exact quote right now and who said it, but I think that's not fair because you have, you know, a, a beautiful woman scantily clad lying on a beach all the way to pornography of, of, I don't even want to say it, but, you know, raping children. Okay. So there's, there's, there's a huge range of what people find arousing. And I think that arousal is not the problem. The problem is what we find arousing and what it says about our sort of erotic blueprint and how we relate to humanity. And that that's often something we don't even want to really think about or deal with. What are the sort of the templates that, that are arousing to us? What are the arousal patterns that we are drawn to? And are they related to how we relate to ourselves and, and others? Um, and so I guess my approach to it is to say there's nothing wrong with the fact that you feel that way. I think the question is whether or not you're going to make that your life <laughs> or you're going to have a relationship with pornography or not. And I think there's a lot of factors in thinking about whether or not you would have a relationship to pornography that include what got brought up in the question, the industry itself, which is highly problematic the empathy element, which I think if there's a more healthier way to think about it, it's to think about that these are actual people. You know, I think that for many people, the, the idea that you can sort of just objectify and dehumanize actually makes it easier to feel aroused. But am I comfortable with my objectification and dehumanization of another person? And Many of us are comfortable with doing that. That's not to say that if we would confront it in ourselves, we would continue to be comfortable with it. But 
it, it's our ability to sort of reduce that person to just a sexual object for our gratification that allows us to be turned on by it. Um, I think the other problem with pornography is that particularly if you encounter it at an, a young age and you develop your arousal patterns around it and you develop your eroticism around it, that again, to this, some of these points that were made, it, it can, it's a little bit like being brought up on chocolate cake. You know, you never actually learn what it is to be in a healthy relationship to food because you were constantly be given cotton candy and, uh, you know, M&Ms and cake. And that while there's pleasure in it, it actually distorts your palate and distorts your ability to be in a healthy relationship to a really fundamental human experience. I, I have friends who work with uh, victims of human trafficking, uh, you know, and prostitution. And, mm-hmm. um, and one of the effective ways that they've found to deal with, to, to, with, with the men who hire prostitutes is that they they actually meet former prostitutes and the prostitutes basically put them through an education school of what, what they have gone through and mm. it completely changes the way they see it. Like, yeah. and the reactivation rate is like less than 5%. Right. Um, because it, you know, and, and to me it, it is this question of, you know, like people, I, I guess I would have a question or, or just I'm curious. I've noticed in the church that sometimes um, when we talk about ideal relationships and ideal marriages and ideal things, we we kind of turn people into objects. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not even be sex objects, but they are other. They are this thing we get so that we can fulfill our destiny, our, you know, men need a good loving wife, women need a good protective husband or whatever. Mm. Um, and it almost becomes like we just need this thing so that we can have this perfect scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't really talk about, no, I need a partner that is going to call me on my crap and also mm-hmm. make me happy and, you know, all these different mm-hmm. things um, and have a complex relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that is ultimately incredibly satisfying, but also challenging and and nuanced and all of these things. Right. And so for me, I wonder if some of that is, you know, we have a culture that often commodifies people, even if it's not sexually. Definitely. Um, and and if, you know, if there's certain aspects, I think there's certain aspects of church culture that do a great job at humanizing people. Um, and others that do not. And I'm just wondering if some of that might play into some of the pornography problems we have, especially especially when we talk about, like, I've just noticed when men are addressed mm-hmm. about the porn problem, women suddenly become this, like, mass object. It's like, you are doing this to women. Mm-hmm. And all women are this thing. They're these other things, <laughs> as opposed to mm-hmm. you're doing this to some people. Yeah that are women usually. Um, but these aren't some other creature that you're doing this to. These are fellow human beings mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, Oh, you're, you're taking these poor creatures off their pedestal and deem, you know, and right. making them into whores. It's like, no, these are, these are human beings that have lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, it's very interesting what you're saying. I have never uh, thought about it in the way that you're talking about, but I think, you know, it's absolutely true in just sort of the larger discourse around sexuality and women. We we tend to see men as the sexual subjects and women as the sexual objects. That's why we so much focus on modesty and keeping ourselves, you know, not tempting for these poor guys. And um, that that the, the pornography discourse is an extension of that, and it. It's often offered in this sort of let's protect the women, so to speak, and I, I don't want to be dismissive of that uh, to any degree that that's sincere, but it's it, it is in a way of kind of like it's a, it's focused around in some ways you could even argue there's some contempt for women in the way we talk about it because it's it's so much centered around uh, male purity as sort of the the essence of spiritual progression for men and that women are the the temptresses in that and so 
pornography is a problem and it's filthy and it's devaluing of women. But it's, it, I agree with what you're saying. It's not really speaking to the dehumanization of women, of real women, and um, and making it more more real um, how women re- men relate to women in general and their sexuality in general because you know I think often the way that you know clients that I talk to think in pornography is that it's it is a way to be in a kind of invulnerable relationship to a female and to sort of imagine she's there for you or she's there you know without you really having to humanize her or be obligated to her in any way and I think that that part of you know I may be wrong about this but I think part of the reason it's such a problem in LDS culture is the shaming of sexuality and the profound anxiety that we have around it um, coupled with some of the the misogyny that I think is inherent to some of the messages around sexuality and so you know the dehumanizing that I see my clients do towards their wives and in subtle ways but not so subtle for the wife, meaning she feels that she's seen as someone who should be there for him, but not really as a partner and as a friend, someone who should manage his sexual urges, but not really someone who also uh, is sexual and has sexual wishes and desires. And, so a lot of that sort of male sexual entitlement gets played out in marriages and I think is often what's being expressed in a lot of pornography use. And I still say that at the same time that I don't want to vilify um, finding graphic images appealing as much as I feel like happens sometimes in our discourse. So I'm trying to sort of hold that there's both normalcy in it, but also we can be responsible in how we relate to it. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the struggle I've seen people have in in this is that it's like it's become so you know it's become so twisted in that I feel like it pornography and the culture that we've created has gone so far down a certain path that we took something that was kind of neutral, mm-hmm. um, you know, like sex like sex is pretty neutral and then because we got so weird about it it mm-hmm. like i mean and, and i will say there there is actually there is one other question i had and that is the disturbing trend i'm seeing towards more violent pornography mm. um and pornography that is intentionally demeaning yeah. um like just just in, in you know you have like 50 shades of gray i mean even when i'm searching something online and something else pops up and you're like what mm-hmm. um and and knowing that there's whole communities that just flock around this and this is outside of lds culture as well but sure. you know i i don't know you know i don't know what type of pornography is being viewed by lds men but yeah. i i do know from you know some of the studies i've done too is that porn, it starts to get, it, it just seems to tend to get more and more violent and more and more about control and violence right. as opposed to just, ooh, this is arousing. Right, which is this issue of sort of erotic maps and sort of what what it turns you on and does it turn you on the idea of, of basically, you know, harming another person. It's just, it's hard to get our head around around I think the idea that that is a turn on for some people but for some people it is and uh you know what is it am I comfortable with the, the arousal patterns that engage me so I think you're absolutely right I mean I think there's not only there is an industry that supports it but then see cuz I I do think you know we have a very unusual problem um in that we have more sexually explicit material than the human mind has evolved to be able to handle. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a little bit like junk food, you know, that we have companies that create foods that are designed to sort of trigger the pleasure centers in our brain in a way that it, it's very hard to resist it because it's designed specifically to be appealing and yet it's really not good for you. 
And I think of pornography as the same way. And so you, I think you can get sort of sucked into an experience that is very compelling and you can waste, squander tons of time and there, it's very incongruent with your moral positions in life. And, you know, you used to have to go out and be willing to commit to buying a magazine. Now it's just a click away and you can be in an entire world, you know, viewing people having sex and so on. And so it's, it's, it, it really is a unique struggle that, that many people face. Um, and I think much like our relationship to food and sexuality, it's about being willing to kind of assert, you know, in some ways we live in a culture where we sort of think the idea of censoring is, is inherently negative that, you know, we want this idea of freedom and the freedom to pursue what we, what matters to us. But when you have such freely available material, that's not necessarily good for the human psyche or our spiritual development, it is a challenge. Now, I mean, can I both see it as a challenge and see, you know, that I can be sucked into something? Um, how do I, what do I need to do to basically understand it's human to want it. it doesn't make me defective, but it may not be productive or good or good for my relationship or good for anything to be, to let myself go in that direction. So again, I think similar to the, to the chastity lessons is is less shame and more choice. Like I'm not just going to make myself a bad person because I like chocolate cake, but I might want to not have it around the house <laughs> because I don't like how I feel when I eat chocolate cake all the time. Mm-hmm. So, but if I sit around saying just the fact that I even want chocolate cake makes me a de- horrible human being, um, then I probably would be eating a lot more of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's important to acknowledge the uh, diversity and the spectrum of what might be called pornography. Um, And as you indicated early on, to be reflective about what you're responding to and how you feel about what what you're responding to. And I was recalling what Laurel was saying about shame and how it kind of causes you to get in this reactionary mode. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like some of the objectified images, the dehumanization, it's us just reacting. It's not us choosing that this is what we want, and it's not authentic mm-hmm. intimacy, but it's it's a biological reaction um, to, to whatever you're finding arousing. And that's why objectified images are used in advertising, mm-hmm. and that made me think of the killing us softly for... Um, trailer that's been shared around that's about advertising the image of women, mm-hmm. um, you know, which we can share if, mm-hmm. if people haven't seen that yet. But it's, you know, it's it, it, it shows that all around our world, not just definitely not the porn industry, but in selling beer or selling cars or, or whatever, we're using these very reactive images that are not human at all anymore um, to to give a stimuli to to give a response similar to wanting sugar or or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, and so I could see how someone might take time to be self-reflective about what they really want. Are they wanting real intimacy? You know, are they wanting a good, healthy diet, or are they wanting to satisfy their craving? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, give themselves time to to think about that and be be able to use their agency and make a choice about what they want more so than simply reacting to what is available to them, what is readily available to them. Exactly. You know, I'm a pretty health conscious person. I I actually grew up in a home where my mom was quite health focused. We had tofu way before it was cool to eat tofu and so on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like I sort of think of myself as I have to be countercultural if I'm going to be healthy and slender, uh, I just have to be because, you know, I just can't eat what's sort of typically available. So I I make a proactive choice about what kind of foods come into the house. And similarly, a proactive choice around what our relationship is to media and to, you know, putting porn filters on the house and so on. Uh, but but it's like, it's more like I'm going to, I am going to, 
I'm going to create the environment to the best of my ability that I think is going to foster my healthy uh, development and the healthy development of my children. And those are, it's not about that uh, desiring junk food is, makes me a bad person or finding pornography uh, enticing doesn't inherently make me a bad person, but I'm going to make proactive decisions about what my relationship is going to be to those realities. Because, you know, letting the consumer culture drive it is a bad idea. I've listened to a lot of the Mormon podcasts, and the most I've heard talk about pornography is don't shame, you know, mm-hmm. that that it, it you get caught in the shame cycle. So I think this is really useful as a very well-articulated uh, thinking out loud of of how that works, of how how we respond and, and what kind of choices we can make. Yeah, I, I find it also very empowering to talk about, you know, making, again, choices of your own will as opposed to just the reaction of just don't let it in, just don't do this. Um, like that, you know, it gives you a sense of a little more control, at least over yourself, even if you can't control the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I And I feel like that's really important because especially we talk about the way we talk about sex is almost like it's so out of control, even among good people, we just can't control it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I find that so damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like we're scared to integrate it into ourselves in any way. Um, Yeah. And and maybe it would still be valuable to say this. I don't know if I've said it in the, in this conversation well or not, but I think that sexuality and eroticism and desire is not the problem. It's when we get into compulsive relationships to our sexuality or to food, for that matter, whatever, that there's it has more to do with anxiety, self-indulgence. You know, it's like, what are the choices that we're making? It's not the fact that food gives us pleasure or sex gives us pleasure. It's how are we going to relate to those things? Because are we going to integrate it in a way where it blesses our life and we use it to bless the lives of those we're in relationship with, or are we going to use it to indulge and to sort of uh, spiral into a kind of self-destruction, okay? And and that's, so I, I think it's problematic when we shame, you know, sexuality as opposed to what's a relationship to it. And, and that's where I, I wish we would shift the conversation a bit more. That said, I do want to say, you know, I understand that, some people have a real struggle and I don't want to minimize like if they just, you know, uh, I don't want to minimize it for some people that it feels very, they feel very trapped by this cycle that they get into of their own impulses and their own inability to, to sort of self-regulate. And, you know, obviously some people need more support and help to, to rework their relationship to sexuality and to sexually explicit materials um, to be something that's more in line with what they believe is best for them and believe is right. Um, but I sometimes think we, 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 we start out in a shame frame that is, creates part of the very problem we're trying to solve. All right. Well, thank you so much for another podcast, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about how to talk to your kids about sex, Visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the How to Talk to Your LDS Kids About Sex online course under the Online Courses tab. Dr. Finlayson Fife also has two relationship courses for sale on her website as well. You can find those at www.finlayson-fife.com. And in honor of the Christmas season, Dr. Finlayson Fife is having a holiday sale where you can take 20% off all of her online courses and get additional discounts if you buy more than one course. Act now before the sale ends.